Wednesday is a significant day in the calendar because it's the day that most people, according to one uh, piece of research, is the day that most people would give up on their New Year's resolutions. January the 19th is the day where uh, Strava, the the cycling and the exercise app, they they see most people kind of on their way to um, going back to to old habits. Quite depressing, isn't it? It starts the year with, with such optimism of change and it doesn't take even three weeks for old habits to return. But what you need for lasting change is not some new resolution or new regime, you need to be changed from the inside out. And today, we're going to look at two changed lives. Lives that weren't changed by habit or by resolve, but by God. And we're going to look at an example from the Old Testament this morning and the New Testament this evening. Uh, Naaman and Zacchaeus. Now, Naaman, he was a commander of an army of the, the king of Syria was his boss, and uh, as we look at this meeting that he had with Elisha, the prophet of God, you'll see four things. If you're taking notes, or you want to kind of, kind of take, a, take a map of where I'm going with this, there's four points. Naaman's problem, Naaman's expectations, Naaman's cure, and Naaman's transformation. So let's start with Naaman's problem. Now, in many ways, Naaman didn't have many problems. He, was, uh, he had everything that you could possibly want. He was well thought of. He was a successful military commander. He lived in a beautiful part of the world. And he was incredibly wealthy. But the Bible makes it very clear that this success hadn't come on its own. It wasn't Naaman's doing. Look at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favour because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. See, God is sovereign over his success. God works in strange ways to achieve his purposes. And one of these ways was to defeat the people of Israel. Syria was a a neighbouring country to to Israel and they had long history of being enemies with Israel. But because of Israel's disobedience, despite the fact that they were God's people, God decided that um, they couldn't just abandon him and worship idols without any consequences. So Syria had conquered them. And God was in control of Naaman's great successful military career. So God is in control over these big international relations. But God is also sovereign over individual lives. And so we read that key key verse, uh, that key part of the verse at the end of verse 1. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Despite despite the fact that he he was pals with the king, despite his impressive mansion and his healthy bank account, Despite the authority that he had and the way he could control thousands of men, he's not happy. There is a problem which he cannot solve. And it's this condition called leprosy. 
Now, when the Old Testament talks about leprosy, it's not the same as, as uh, what we call Hansen's disease today. Um, it's, a, it's an umbrella term that covers all sorts of skin uh, problems and uh, a range of conditions. And uh, we don't know what it might have been, but we know it would have affected Naaman's life in many, many ways. It affected the way people saw him. It was embarrassing for him. It couldn't be hidden. It alienated him from other people. And in those days, there was no remedy for this sort of thing. There were no exercise programs or or diets or special creams that you could put on it. Uh, But Naaman's main problem wasn't his skin at all. He may have thought it was, but there was a deeper issue. And the Bible does this on a number of occasions where, where someone thinks that they have a problem and God tells them what their real problem is. And we think of the man who can't walk in the New Testament and Jesus looks at him in this, in this crowded house and he's come through the roof and Jesus says to him, your faith has, has healed you. But it's his sins that Jesus is talking about. And in the same way, um, this a debilitating skin condition for Naaman wasn't the main issue. It's his heart that was in need of change. And for those reasons in the Bible, physical ailments often give a picture of sin. Now when I say that, people with skin diseases or health problems aren't more sinful than people that don't have those issues. Let me, let me get that uh, out of the way straight away. That is certainly not the case. All of us are born with sinful hearts. But uh, the reason why we have this story here is because Naaman did not know that he was a sinner. It was invisible to him. He did, however, know about his skin. Just like his leprosy, uh, sin was something that alienated him from people. He couldn't hide it away. It affects his life. And he could not heal himself. So you can see the parallels there. So what could Naaman do? What could Naaman possibly do? Well, that leads us to our second point. Naaman's expectations. Look at verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress... Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. She would cure him of his leprosy. And God's control is still clear in this chapter. As well as being the God over countries and and how they war against each other, he's also in control of this little girl who has been taken as a little prisoner uh, away from Israel and to Syria. She must have seen some horrible things. She would have been torn away from her family. We don't even know her her name. And yet, she plays a huge role in this story. And it shows the desperation of Naaman to rid himself of this disease. Because in terms of influence, in this particular part of the world, in this particular time, she was the lowest of the low, really. If you were looking for wisdom or advice... You would go to a a respected, uh, old, and a a local, and a a rich man. Those were the kind of criteria for someone to listen to. And this girl is the very opposite, isn't she? She's young, she's a girl, she's poor, and she's not from 
where Naaman's from. And yet, Naaman is so desperate, he listens to her. And she tells Naaman, there's a prophet, a man of God, who could help you. And Naaman kind of sort of listens. Because he goes, he packs his bags, he thinks, uh, he's got that cupboard in his house where his wife keeps the, the gifts. And he gets them out and he, and he says, we're, we're heading off to Israel. And he goes to the king. Because he's an important man. Naaman is very important. So it's the king that I need to see because he's also important. And that's where we'll solve our problems. And uh, look at verse 5. He goes to the king. Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. It's a lot of money. And uh, he goes in front of the king and he says, can you sort my problem out? And the king is insulted. He thinks it's some sort of joke or some sort of ploy to start another war. And he, and he tears his clothes. And in those days, that's what you did when you were mad. I don't know what you do today. Maybe you punch a wall or something. I don't know what, what our equivalent is. But he tore his clothes. But notice that he went to the palace first. And Naaman was looking in the wrong place. The king of Israel knew there was nothing that he could do to solve this man's problems. Naaman wanted change. He was willing to travel. But he still didn't know what the cure was. Now, when Elisha hears about the king's anger, because even in those days, when leaders do silly things, it makes the news, Elisha hears and he tells Naaman, come to me, come to me. So Naaman, his eyes light up. He says, okay, this is the man. So he goes to Elisha's house, and I'm not sure what Elisha's house looked like in my head. It's a rickety old cottage, maybe with, with smoke coming out the chimney. And uh, he's looking forward to seeing this man, Elisha. And he knocks on the door, or probably gets one of his servants to knock on the door. And Elisha doesn't even come to meet him. It's a servant that comes. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. What on earth was that all about? He travelled all this way. Not only was he made to look a fool in front of the king, but when he turned up at this, this prophet's house, not only did he not see him personally, but he, he, sent a, he sent a servant in his place. And on top of that, all he said was go in a river. Naaman wanted healing, but he wanted it on his own terms. Look at verse 11. Behold, I thought that he would surely come up to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and uh, wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Maybe he wanted something that they have in their own country. Maybe he wanted uh, Elijah to, Elisha to act like one of the, the sorcerers that they had. He wanted some sort of, of big magic show. Or maybe he wanted God to act like a, a vending machine where he puts uh, this many sets of clothing in and, and this much gold, and then he gets what he wants. He'll be healed. As one writer says, he says, uh, Naaman had already written God's script for him. He not only wanted God's benefit, 
but to specify the way in which God did it. And Elisha could have healed Naaman in this way. Don't get me wrong. Elisha could have waved his hand in a dramatic way. He could have. But for the healing of God to work in this situation and to have the desire it needed to, it needed to humble this proud man. If God wants to build a palace, as one uh, writer said, he sometimes has to demolish the little shack that someone has built there. Naaman needed to be cut down to size. And for him to be healed, he needed to do something that took him out of his comfort zone. In the same way Naaman didn't approve of Elisha's advice, we too can be snobby, can't we? We can be uh, looked down at the way the Bible tells us to uh, come to the Lord Jesus. We want to be saved on our terms. We don't want to be told how to come to him. We don't like how specific it is. Uh, Naaman uh, was a commander. He gave orders. He didn't take them. But then he was being told very specifically to go into a river. And a specific river at that. And a dirty river. A dirty river. And in the same way, we, we think... God, this can't be right. I want to get right on my own terms. Can I just do good things? Can I be nice to people? Can I just give to charity? Can I be polite to strangers? Can I help uh, blind women across the road? Can I uh, meditate? I'll meditate, God. That'll impress you, won't it? Uh, Why can't I just take bits of other religions that I like and put it all together into my own super religion? Why do I need to ask for forgiveness? Why does my life have to change? Why do I have to live like he wants me to live? I want to live like I want to live. It's all too specific. And we don't like being told what to do. We're not not unlike Naaman in that way, are we? And so God needed to show Naaman that good could come from what he considered foolishness. He also found Elisha's advice humiliating. And it's the same with the good news of the gospel. People don't like the good news that the Bible has because it shows us that we can't do it on our own. It takes admitting that we have a problem, that we're not in control, that we uh, cannot help ourselves. And if stepping into the Jordan River is one thing, then staking our whole life on the actions of of a penniless carpenter is is an even bigger stretch, you might think. You might feel embarrassed telling people, I'm a Christian. I go to church. And Naaman also didn't like the freeness of the cure. He felt uncomfortable because he couldn't offer anything himself. He brings this this royal letter from the king. He says, look who I know. He brings treasure beyond Elisha's wildest dreams. And yet the cure is not give this money It's go wash. Naaman is is so angry. He's so angry. And look at verse 13. His servants pluck up the courage to go to him. This this armed, angry, angry man. And they say to him, "My, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And that's what they say to him. And his servants know that if Elisha had asked him to pay this great deal of money, 
if, they'd, if, if he'd asked him to show some sort of bravery, to, to defeat someone in a duel, or, or save an orphan from a burning building, or, or climbing to the top of a mountain in a, in a very disciplined way. This was something that he would do, because only he could do it, because he was Naaman, and he was, he was powerful, and he was great. But all he wanted was for Naaman to go into a river. He didn't like that, because anyone can do that. And, and we're the same, aren't we? we? We don't like the fact that anyone can come to Jesus. And we, we don't like the fact that it's not dramatic all the time. We want there to be a, a voice from heaven and, and flashing lights. And we want to show what we've brought to the table. This is what I've done. Can't I show my brilliance and my dedication over many years and finally be recognized for how brilliant I am? But with the Christian faith, it's coming empty-handed to the cross. We don't bring anything ourselves. So this morning, can I ask you, what is your expectation? Are you a bit like Naaman, wanting uh, to change, but you want to do it on your own terms? So let's see how this plan worked. Uh, Thirdly, Naaman's cure. We have to admit, it is a strange request, isn't it? Not only what he's asked to do, but the way he's asked to do it. He has to go into this river and wash, and he has to do it seven times. And he goes off in a huff after his servants have, have spoken to him. They've said, come on, do it, please. Uh, they've, they've probably had uh, a few incidents where he's been a bit of a prima donna, and they, they tell him to get on with it. And you can imagine Naaman, as he goes into the river, and you can imagine maybe on the, the fifth time, and the sixth time, and he's there, he's washing in the river, and he's saying, I told you, this isn't working, is it? This is, this is ridiculous. And even as he goes down the seventh time, he's maybe muttering under his breath, he's saying, this is stupid. This is absolutely stupid. And as he looks down at his, his, his previously his, his scarred and his blotched skin, he, he looks and it, he takes it out of the water, and it's, Beautiful. He calls out to his servant, are you seeing this? And his servant says, it looks, it looks good to me. And the blemish and all these marks that were on his skin have been gone. And the Bible's description is wonderful, isn't it? It says Naaman's flesh was like the flesh of a little child. Not only was it free from disease, but it was better than a man's skin should be. And once again, we cannot help but see the comparison here with the cross. It seems foolish, and in the eyes of the world, it is foolish for us to do this, to, to put our whole lives upon this moment 2,000 years ago when a man died on a cross. And yet, just like Naaman's healing upon that seventh dip in the river, as soon as we put our trust In Jesus' saving work on the cross, we too are healed. Healed from the curse of sin and of shame. We're no longer bound for hell, but we are made right with God. And not only free from sin, but in a better state than we have ever been before. Because not only does Jesus take away our sins, but he gives us his righteousness. 
So our, our skin is, is like that of a young child. We're, we're in a better position than we've ever been in before. Fourthly, Naaman's transformation. I want to look at this, this transformation because this is not the story about a man who has his skin condition healed because you wouldn't come on a Sunday morning just to hear about the story of a man who had bad skin and suddenly had nice skin. That wouldn't be life-changing. The big change is the heart change. Not only was his skin better, but he had been transformed. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I now know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a gift from your servant. When we are saved, there is a change. But we have to make sure that we understand the order in which things happen in. We don't imitate Jesus and then we're forgiven because we've done so well. No, we, we are forgiven by Jesus and then we begin to look like him in our lives. And the change in Naaman is, is so clear. Let's notice a few things. He, he confesses with his tongue. We've just seen that. He says, behold, there's no other God. He comes from a country where, where they worship so many idols and they've got different temples for different gods. But he says, there's no other God apart from the God of Israel. And notice his humility. This is the most important man around. He is a, a military commander. He, he can order people around and yet, there's five occasions between verse 15 and 18, you can count them if you want, where he says to Elisha, I'm your servant. He has a, a reverence and a respect for God's prophet. This was someone who had great power, but realized that he was, he was a humble servant. He's also making plans for how he's going to worship back home. Look at verse 17. Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? He asks for soil. He wants earth from Israel to take back with him. In those days, the idea of God was, was tied closely to place. He wants to make sure that he is worshipping the God of Israel, the only true God. You can see him, and he's grappling with how he's going to still keep his job and also be a servant of God. And he says, uh, in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. This is verse 18. Um, when my uh, master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon me. In this matter, so when he goes in with the king and he's helping the king, maybe the king was old, and when the king is bowing down, he wants God to forgive him for bowing down with the king. What is Elisha's response to these requests? Does he ridicule him for not understanding that he didn't need soil to worship the true God? Don't you understand, you idiot? God is the God of the whole earth. You don't need special soil. Does he give him a dressing down 
for even thinking about going to the pagan temple? What does Elisha say to him? Go in peace. Go in peace, he says. Because Elisha knows that the Lord has begun a work in the life of Naaman. There's already fruit to be seen. When Jesus saves, Jesus transforms. Unbelievers here this morning, are you in denial at the sin in your life? What is stopping you from coming to Jesus and asking for forgiveness? Is it because you want to earn it? Do you find it humiliating to admit that you've done wrong, that you can't cure yourself? There's no one too important, no one too good. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness at the cross. Believers, is there fruit from your conversion? We'll, we'll look at this in a bit more detail tonight. Uh, has Christ's saving work continued to transform you? Are you still confessing? Are you still showing humility and showing a desire to keep worshipping in the same way as Naaman did? May our prayer be that God, through the Spirit, continue to make us more like Christ.